Hello, and after a short break, welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. Just to let you know that I took some time off after launching the Material Matters Fair, it transpires that putting on this kind of event is quite a lot of work. Huge thanks to all the exhibitors and for everyone who visited. It's wonderful to meet so many of you in person. We are returning next year, so watch this space for more information. But back to the pod. I've been doing this for nearly four years now, would you believe? But for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. I'm completely delighted to tell you that my guest today is Professor Rebecca Early. Becky is a design researcher and award-winning team leader at the University of the Arts London and is based at Chelsea College of Arts where she's Professor of Circular Design Futures. She initially trained as a printed textile designer before creating her own fashion label, Be Early, in 1995, and her prints and garments have been commissioned by the likes of Bjork and Damien Hirst. They're also in the collections of the V&A and the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford. More recently, though, she's carved a global reputation as one of the leading thinkers around the need for fashion to become circular. With projects including Hearwear, which investigated how bio-based agricultural waste could be turned into material for clothing that was made locally, and Trash to Cash that brought designers together with scientists to find ways to regenerate cotton waste and polyester. Not only that, but she also co-founded World Circular Textiles Day in 2020. In this episode, we're going to talk generally about fashion and circularity, but I suspect hone in on arguably the industry's most controversial material, polyester. Becky, thanks very much for doing this. How are you? Hello, Grant. I'm very well, thank you. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. First and foremost, I've got to ask, well, I mean, where are you? You've got loads of clothes hanging behind you. I'm quite intrigued. Yeah, I'm down the end of the garden, actually, in my shed. Uh (laughs) It's a little wooden hut, which we built when we moved here nearly 20 years ago. And it doubles as um, a recording studio, a textile studio, and a sort of hang out for the teenagers now as well yeah, very nice you've got loads of clothes behind you are those yours or are those the teenagers or how does that yeah work? no there's a combination of my work here uh an archive of my work current things i'm working on as well as actually i have to admit lots of things i'm waiting to sell on ebay so um quite a bit of designer clothes i've grown out of <laughs> Right. I mean, I was thinking about this, actually. I was thinking I'm probably the least best person to talk about fashion with anybody. I mean, I have a fetish for corduroy and a bit of tweed. I keep T-shirts for decades. I have a couple of pair of jeans. I still have a T-shirt. I was looking through my wardrobe the other day from university. It's got a big DM footprint or boot print on the back where I fell over and somebody trod on me. (laughs) So I'm quite nervous about this, Becky. I'll be honest with you. Well, look, I was kind of noodling around trying to work out how to get into this interview. I spent a bit of time in your Instagram feed. There's quite a bit of swimming on there. <laughs> I guess what's called wild swimming nowadays. So no heating, no concrete, no chlorine. You don't wear a wetsuit, I notice. What is it about swimming? Yeah, wild swimming. It's the cold water. It's a, it's a huge sort of hit to the brain, really. Well, it's just nice to be in nature. It's definitely the way to relax and switch off from the kind of pressures of working in the climate movement. And actually, the older you get as a woman, the better it is for you, which is why you find lots of mums like me queuing up at the lakes and the ponds to dunk themselves rather than being dunked (laughs) as witches. We're being we're dunking ourselves now. (laughs) And uh, where do you do this? Do you have a favourite pond? Um, All over the place, really. 
Ireland. I'm married to an Irish actor and we spend a lot of time in Ireland, but I go to Hampstead Ponds and I go to the lakes outside of London. So the motorways of London were built from gravel pits that, Mm. you know, have been filled in and you can sail on them and and some of them you can swim in. So I go to a, a range of places. Very good. The other thing I noticed on your Instagram feed, which I was kind of intrigued by, is that you've colour-coded your books <laughs> at home. <laughs> I'm always intrigued by people's books, and I'm always intrigued by how they store their books. I mean, what is that about? Not liking visual clutter? Is that? I'm just wondering what it says about you. Oh, I'm looking through the window out of the studio down to the house and the clutter in the way. That, that, that's making me <laughs> laugh so much. Okay, that's just novels for a start. Okay. All the other books are in other parts of the house and other buildings even. I keep a lot of my art books in my office at work and um, we have plays and textile books as well as all my theory books. So that particular shelf, it was more of a... Um, a joke really. I was sat there on a Sunday afternoon and I just wanted to see some order. And I think I will keep talking about <laughs> I will keep talking about climate change on this um, interview, I'm sure, but it just gave me a huge sense of pleasure to line things up. And um on stories I said, Shall I do this? Please stop me, you know, and I knew, I knew it was gonna take me a couple of hours and people would think that I was strange, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> It's difficult to know where to start. You have this extraordinary list of what you call outputs on your website that has a vast array of things that you've done, said and written. And then I came across this blog post or essay really on your site about the future of polyester. I mean, polyester, as well, you know, and I'm sure many listeners will know, is a, is a polymer, a plastic, really. It's derived from oil and is generally seen as a problem. And we know this from the likes of David Attenborough, and we've had it drummed into us for the past decade or so, that plastic is a bad thing. I think there's a welter of statistics that from your essay and from various others that Europeans use nearly 26 kilos of textiles per person and discard 11 kilos of them every year. 87% of clothing ends up in landfill, and the majority of those garments will contain polyester. However, you mount a kind of case for the defence of the material you write that it's one of the most viable solutions to meeting our global clothes needs, albeit with huge changes to how it's used and reused. So can we talk about our relationship with polyester? But but also, I guess, your relationship with it as well, because you used it as a textile designer. Right? I did, yes. So first of all, I think it's brilliant that that's what you picked up on and that's what you want to talk about. Depending on when this goes out, we might be able to remember or listeners might be able to think straight away about what Just Stop Oil as a campaign looks like and the disruption it's currently causing on the M25. We have had a rise and rise and rise in volume about polyester, which has really intensified in the last couple of years, very much linked to the David Attenborough documentary, as you mentioned, because it's linked to plastic. And from an academic point of view, from a research point of view, I've definitely wanted to spend some time to really clarify the different elements in polyester, around polyester, to get to a point where we can make some actionable decisions. Although I agree with just stop, and we should, Mm. it doesn't seem that possible because we have a juggernaut of an economy and of an industry. So actually, it's more about steering and slowing down as best we can rather than just stopping. Okay, I'm going to go to the bit of your question, which was about my relationship with polyester. Yes, let's start with you, Becky. I've got so much to tell you about it. But no, I, I, <laughs> I actually sort of got into it completely by accident in that I was a print designer and I worked in the Central St. Martin's print studio, which at that time was in Soho. 
on the ground floor and it was really fantastically kind of creative space but very very busy and so to get hold of screens and do my silk screen printing process onto silks which was what I had done previously it was really hard to sort of get the time and the space so I started to use a piece of equipment that was in the corner that no one was using purely because I needed to crack on and it was a transfer press and it works with polyesters so you basically put the dyes onto paper you make your design and then you press it onto the polyester. And this is still how polyester is printed today in industry. Mm. And I began to really experiment with it. I think some tutors said, oh, that's just for swimwear. But actually, the more I shopped around and went looking for materials that had a polyester content in them, the more I, I had a sort of palette to be creative with. And I ended up doing my MA fashion graduate collection uh, with quite a lot of polyester in it. And I developed a new technique for printing on it, which was called a photogram. And it predated digital printing. I was able to airbrush hundreds of different colours onto objects, two-dimensional objects that could be squished under a heat press and make these sort of eerie, semi-photographic. They're not, of course, photographic, but these impressions of objects onto shiny polyesters mm. so i created something that had a really strong visual impact and a totally different look for the time and from that really my work with polyester just snowballed i started working for stylists and agents that enabled me to dress pop stars and one-off shoots and it was all about making a really strong visual impact with this material that could be really manipulated by a textile designer is that why it's so popular polyester it can be easily manipulated it's easy to use um no actually i would say it's because it's cheap it is possible to do lots of things with it because it can be heat formed and it can be printed using now digital papers or transfer roller printed and of course izzy miyaki makes incredible pleats with it so mm. it has had appeal from that point of view but it, the real reason it's such a major part of our fiber production is that it's cheap mm. And presumably when you were using it, you had no sense of the environmental impact that it might be having. Absolutely none whatsoever. No, I mean, really none. That came later. It was purely a decision of like, how do I get the idea that's in my head onto fabric and into a garment to finish the course? You know, it was like, <laughs> <laughs> at that time, it was just, I wasn't really thinking any further ahead than, uh, you know, completing my master's and then and then going on to the next thing. I didn't even know what the next thing was. I didn't particularly want to get a job in fashion. Mm. And my thesis was all about campaigning and activism. So I guess that the hints were there. I'd written about feminism on my BA and then on my MA, I'd written about Catherine Hamlet and Judy Blame and all of these activists that were using fashion to try to change things. And that really appealed to me. So I was sort of holding on to my core interests and beliefs but really just wanted to make a visual impact. And then I just started teaching. And, and when I started teaching, I met a really interesting group of staff and makers and fabulous students. And from that, the conversations really grew around our choice of materials. And I began to understand a lot more then about polyester. So we have all this polyester in the world. How does it work? What do we do with it? We can't get rid of it. So what do we do? Well, we can get rid of it and it is being gotten rid of by being burnt. That's one way. Right. So actually, you know, governments do want the incineration to reclaim the energy that way, which is very short term thinking. 
but certainly some Scandinavian regions do that. But it goes into landfill. It doesn't go away. We've got to find ways to use what we've already produced. I mean, that would be my thesis on the subject would be Mm. we've understood that this comes from oil. Oil is not a regenerative resource. It's incredibly toxic and polluting in, in the drilling. But the industry's hooked on it and they've produced a huge amount of it already. We need to unearth that and fold it back into recycling systems. Mm. And we need to begin to replace oil-based polyester with other kinds of synthetics that give us the weight, the quality and the aesthetics that polyester and other synthetics have been giving us. So we can have bio-based polyesters right which are made from what all kinds of things but generally plant-based think of oil what you get other oils from you can then refine it into a synthetic fiber because it seems to me the the thesis of your piece on the the website was that we actually need to change our perception of it and there has to be more nuance around the debate of polyester in other words, not all plastic is bad. We, we have plastic and we have to find different ways of thinking and using it. Yeah, well, the main, I mean, the main part of that essay really, I think, is about what we're drilling oil for and where oil gets used. I mean, we're, of, of the huge amount of oil that is being drilled, it, it's not being drilled for polyester. That's a tiny percentage of the use. So crude oil is um, made of different component parts and a sort of fractioning process divides up different qualities of that oil. So although oil is drilled primarily for gasoline and for fuel, only 40% of what we drill is actually suitable for that. And then the other parts go to other applications, but with an extreme amount of processing. So we're using polyester and plastic pretty much because it's the byproduct. It's this sort of, you've got to drill and get this other part out to help us travel, but we're then producing this other stuff that needs using up, which is why it's so cheap. It's a waste stream, fundamentally, is, is almost what you're saying. It's a low-value element of a bigger supply chain, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, nothing should be seen as waste. I suppose for me, it's about the difference between the idealistic view on what needs to happen to be a sustainable industry and to reduce climate change and then the on-the-ground reality of what it takes to actually bring change about and how much resistance in the economic systems, obviously in big corporations, and then in the political systems there are to the changes that will negatively affect the economy. And, you know, we're also talking whilst COP27 is on, we're all aware of just how difficult it is for people to make the decisions to lead to the change that's actually needed. So that idea of reframing polyester looking at it differently rather than spending a lot of time and effort saying ban it never have it in your wardrobe it's more a case of it's not going to go away how can we use it differently and value it differently so that it benefits us and our wardrobes that's a really exciting design challenge Mm. it was a basic question of, of how we uh, value it differently and how we use it differently. Yeah, so there's lots of examples of that. I mean, I already mentioned Izzy Miyake. So those polyesters Mm. are very smooth. They're not likely to be very fibrous in that case. Although I have to talk to you a bit later on about where fibres in the ocean actually come from. There's some interesting research coming to light around what it is that's polluting our, our oceans and where that comes from. 
I think that what we need to look at is examples of where polyester is really, really good in our wardrobes and really works for us. It's an amazing waterproof material, for example. It's lightweight. It dries quickly, so you don't have to sort of tumble dry it and iron it. Obviously, sportswear are big users of it, but not so much. It shouldn't really be in the cheapest of fashions. That's the paradoxical situation that we've got ourselves into is that we're using these long lasting fibres like polyester in cheap, fast fashion clothing that's been designed and made not to last very long. It's very trend driven when in actual fact, something like cotton is a regenerative material and would be much more suitable in some ways for clothing that would be trend based. So my work and the work in my team at University of the Arts London is all about really looking at the value systems that we've built around materials and questioning those. Talking about value systems, there are some interesting points in the piece on your website. And there's a comment from Charles Ross, who's a sportswear and outdoor wear specialist, academic and journalist, who points out that cotton is eight times weaker than polyester. So it produces more pollution, which doesn't necessarily biodegrade more quickly if it's been synthetically dyed. There's so much information that gets lost in the way that our sort of fashion gets reported and talked about. It's all context specific. And yeah, there's a huge amount of detail that we really need to understand and examine. I suppose my bolder bits of writing have been about asking people to look beneath the surface of simplistic messages a little bit more. Mm. But, you know, I'm a campaigner with Extinction Rebellion, I support Just Stop Oil, those voices need to be heard. We need to raise the dial on the whole of this debate. But I suppose in parallel to that, I'm saying we need to come up with solutions that are actionable and don't cause violent disruption. I mean, by violent disruption, I actually don't mean the M25. I actually mean if you try to ban something, you'll create livelihood loss and um, developmental damage in areas and regions that are based on textile production so it's a transition rather than a mm. than a revolt mm. i mean for the wider public i think i suspect in fact i know it's i mean it's incredibly confusing i mean isn't it probably just best we just wear hemp and flax <laughs> do you no you wear cord so actually wear you're wearing <laughs> your, yeah and tweed so you like your cotton uh, and your wool uh, and your cotton t-shirt which has been around since college and meant to say to you when you said that you're very typical man profile in some ways in that consumer researchers look at men and their buying habits and they fit into a style early on and then they stay with that and then they buy multiple versions of that same style <laughs> <laughs> because they don't want to spend the time shopping around so you can go into someone's wardrobe and just see oh yeah that's the t-shirt they like yeah and of course our wardrobes as women are just not really like that I find that fascinating. Yeah. What was the question again? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know. I, what I was going to say is that I, what I've realised over the last, I don't know, decade or so is that I'm increasingly dressing like my father and my father dressed like my grandfather. And it's like subconscious, but it's just happening. All these, I, I, The other day I saw him wearing a corduroy jacket and I thought, oh, I really want that. <laughs> I think that's great, that jacket. But you can't wear the same jacket as your father, is it? It's embarrassing. Um, I don't know. I quite like the idea of that, although I don't want to look like my mom, but I am slowly turning into her and my grandmother, who's actually still alive and rather fabulous. So there is something about aging that changes our wardrobes that actually points the sort of focus back onto talking about younger people. 
if you look back at, for me anyway, my wardrobe over the years, oh my God, what I was wearing in my teens and then in my 20s and then in my 30s and then I became a mum, you know, <laughs> although I've got stuff that I still have going back to my college days, actually, my body shape has changed so I can't fit into a lot of stuff. But my sense of self and style changes in a way quite regularly. It's such a psychological part of our lives. It's so enriching and so enjoyable. Can you pinpoint the moments where your taste in fashion have changed? I mean, you, you mentioned having kids being one, but then, I mean, you start talking about decades. I mean, it can't be a 10 year cycle where you suddenly go, oh, I'm going to change my wardrobe. Can it? Or can it? Because everybody always talks in decades. And it's such a weird thing to do, really. Yeah, well, obviously it's sort of happening slowly to you. It's, <laughs> but I, yes, that pattern of lifestyle, different needs. So you do dress differently after you've had kids because you're basically covered in vomit a lot of the time or something. Mm. The practical needs of life really sort of change from being young, free and single, from being a party going teenager to having kids and then being a very busy person looking after aging parents, mm. being in the middle of it all. And now I barely have time to decide what to wear. <laughs> she says, looking down at my pyjama bottoms I'm wearing off, off screen. I think the point of this bit of the conversation is we could do so much with design and fashion that we're just not doing because we don't tap into those, those mental, emotional, real people scenarios when we set out to make clothes. It's a mass production, highly optimised system that's built on exploitation and profit yeah that's the greatest shame to me of all is that it could be a really enriching industry it's enriching some people presumably oh yes in that sense of the word financially yeah. enriching the people who shall remain nameless right now yeah well can we talk a little bit about your background becky am i right in thinking you come from a farming farming and building yeah uh country girl completely Wiltshire countryside. And were you encouraged to make things and draw as a child? Where'd the interest in textiles come from? Oh, completely. Yeah. My mum, my grandmother, they still knit. I was actually knitting just now about an hour ago and mend everything. There was no waste in our house. Everything had value. Hand-me-down clothes, of course. Why wouldn't you? Buildings built out of things that were laying around. You know, I mean, mm. it was... um fantastic sort of outdoors upbringing in which I learned about how scarce resources were. And, you know, yeah, pre-80s yeah. and 90s, it was pre the kind of affluence and abundance era that we've just lived through. So I definitely have that in my family DNA. So you were on a farm, in a farmhouse? or No, my grandparents were on a farm. My parents were really right. young and I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. My gran was like 40 when she was my gran. And uh, my mum had left the farm, married a local lad, and he had also left his family farm and gone off to become a builder. So they were striking out on their own, that first generation that was striking out on their own, and breaking, breaking up the family unit in some ways, yeah. Mm. Did you enjoy the countryside? Oh, yeah. Were you determined to leave as a child, or, or did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it, but of course I had a profound sense that exciting things were happening somewhere else and I wanted them and I didn't couldn't access it. so I was actually very naughty and I ended up having to be sent to boarding school age 14 at which point I became even more naughty <laughs> well, how did naughtiness manifest itself 
I'm intrigued. Oh my God, my kids actually know these stories, so I won't be um, <laughs> just the usual 14, 15 year old behaviour, a bit of stolen alcohol and um, disobedience and being very cheeky and not doing my work. Mm. So actually, academically, I wasn't at all like bright then. I was bright, but in a different way. I've, I'm, I've actually started looking at neurodiversity and I've got a strong suspicion I've got ADHD, which could account for my resistance at sitting still and concentrating, which is probably yeah. where a lot of that behaviour came from, a frustration. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, traditionally, often, boarding schools aren't great at tolerating that kind of thing. How was yours? Yeah, mine was very intolerant, but had the structure to channel me into some really positive actions. I had to read all my school reports recently as part of this investigation into neurodiversity. And it said, Becky's really likable, you know, and Becky can make a, po <laughs> a positive contribution to society and culture. But she really needs to sit still, concentrate and stop being distracted. And, you know, all the signs were there, but nobody was picking up on it. So what they did is they just channeled you into sports. So I was part of teams. I played a lot of sports. I played hockey for Wiltshire and they helped to give the ones that were naughty, to give them a sense of structure and that to help them achieve at the things that they were good at. So I got an art scholarship and that really sort of then defined my path. Right. The interesting textiles, it started with art? Yeah, yeah. And then I went to foundation course. And at foundation, of course, you have a year to play and to explore all the other elements of the art world. And <laughs> it's really trite. The girl who I loved, who had just met, she was beautifully dressed. Her name's Claire. She chose textiles as the tutor went round with his clipboard. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even heard of textiles as a thing to study. And so I said, I said textiles too in this rash moment. I had been looking at graphic design, but I'm afraid I said textiles just because Claire did. But it turned out to be quite a good impulse, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a decision made by chance. And then was it as soon as you stepped into the workshop or studio, you were like, oh yeah, I've arrived. It, it, did it happen like that? Or well, yeah, was it a slow burn? No, it was Perfect, actually, because I'd like from the background I come from, I was told I wasn't allowed to be a fine artist. I could go. Yeah. I was only allowed to go to art school. And you have to bear in mind, I was the first person to go to university at this point. You know, you can go and study art, but it has to be design. And we want you to be a commercial artist, which is what they used to call a graphic designer. You know, mm. so mm. off I went to do internships in graphic design studios, which I found really boring. But then when I chose textiles, my tutor, who hadn't really seen it coming, he went, oh, yes, because you can do really graphic kind of prints, maybe, but on soft surfaces and maybe for fashion. Like he totally mm. got it. His name was Mike Rennie and he was this amazing tutor who went on to teach loads of really brilliant people. And uh, he totally had me right. I needed the softness. The paper was too hard if I was to be a graphic designer. So I did feel like I'd arrived. And then also it was fibres and fabrics and knitting and mending and painting all the things that in a way my grandmother and my mother had already been doing but they hadn't given it a formal place in their lives it, mm. it was just what they did when they sat down to have a cup of tea and make something useful for the family and that element's really important to me now because I think this undervalued place of textiles and the woman's work is something in culture and society that really, really interests me now. Well, do you know what? I was going to ask you about that. 
because I think what's kind of interesting is you, know, you receive grants and things from organisations like the Crafts Council, and you're on the, the cover of Crafts, the magazine in 1996, I think. And it seems to me that you're always more in the textile world rather than the fashion world. That was conscious. Uh, yeah. Oh, gosh. All I can say is, and I'm finding out a lot more about this now, follow your gut instincts. You know, there's a voice inside you that speaks to you and lots of people will tell you other things, but there's something about that instinct you just have to go with. I ended up doing fashion, but I always felt very uncomfortable in that world. Why was that? Harsh words, unkindness, the value on how one looks being above other values. It just didn't sit comfortably with me. However, I was in it and I was having a great time and I loved everybody in it. It was just for me not going to be the right place. I could produce very provocative textiles and prints and garments because I didn't care. I wasn't in it to win it. I was in it to get out of it. You know, almost a kind of perverse approach, I suppose. And at that awful article, (laughs) I say awful, Caroline will kill me for that. Just all I talk about is not wanting to be in fashion. I read it back the other day and I thought, oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. If you get a lot of coverage when you're young, you say so much stuff that later on you think, oh, (laughs) I was alone in London and really scared and struggling to cover the rent and out of my depth and overwhelmed and busking it, busking it big time and uh, signing on and getting grants at the same time and doing everything I needed to to keep a studio together and like brilliant. And exciting and such good parties. But oh my God, it was so stressful as well. Well, you wrote on Instagram, I think about that piece, that you thought you could, and I'll I'll quote, fight against the invisibility cloak that textile designers often find themselves wearing. Did you succeed in that fight? No. I I mean, yes and no. Lots of, uh, um, okay, it is a yes and no answer. So I think a lot of textile designers would say that I've done quite a bit to expand the space for us but recent economic pressures have meant that we are still very much falling under the umbrella of fashion but there is investment funding and recognition now for the role of women in the industry and those that work with textiles and there's a sort of a comeback if you like so it's another wave of textile feminism i'm part of an eu project at the moment called she makes which is funded by the EU to really raise the profile of female textile makers, designers, workers, entrepreneurs, and start to address some of the inequity in the system by encouraging more outspokenness, more creativity. Unfortunately, I do think that we're still part of the supply chain. And a lot of the innovation that's going on in fashion is based on the textile designer that's probably quite silently working in the studio. But I've gone right back to the source of that. It's just fascinated me because it's sort of connected to my own story as well. But all the girls I've taught over the 26 years I've taught at Chelsea, who are they and where did they come from and where did they go to? All these textile Mm. designers. And there's thousands Mm. of them, thousands of them. The reason I'm on Instagram is actually I keep in touch with lots and lots of people after they've left. And there seems to be some common themes coming through, which is based on how they're raised as girls and how they're educated and the sort of psychological, emotional landscape that develops being a a sort of female in the world and in the creative world. And so part of me is sort of beginning to look at the education system as a place where we need to, alongside textile design, be teaching feminism and be teaching 
as well as climate issues, psychological well-being. I think mm. we all need to step up and step out and show ourselves a little bit more if we want change to take place. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I've been going to the New Designers Exhibition, which is a two-part event in the um, Business Design Centre every July, um, all the graduates leaving. And week one, I think it's week one in particular, is dominated by hundreds and hundreds of basically young female textile graduates. And you do wonder what they do with themselves afterwards because, you know, the world can't need this many textile designers and whether those skills are transferable. And are they transferable in your experience, Becky? It really depends on what course you've studied on. I think I counted at one point there are about 3,000 graduates every year in the UK coming out of textile courses. So, no, probably the world doesn't need that many who are going to go and just design textiles for an industry. We definitely at UAL bring in a broader sense of what the skills are and could be and the directions that people could take. The bottom line is the degree is such a solid sort of fundamental part of the educational journey of a designer. If it's taught well and if it's opened up the ability to question and go and research, you can go and work in any creative field. Mm. Whether or not we're producing enough confident young women, whatever age women actually, because we have lots of mature students that really have that ambition that's another question. I really think more work needs to be done around the sense of female sort of place in the industry mm. and how they can change things. I'll give you an example, okay, because I realise I'm being a bit fluffy. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, for a while, was coaching the graduates on how they could bring sustainability into the companies that they'd gone to work for. So this became a regular question to me. They'd leave, they'd done my sustainability component part of the course, and then they would leave and there'd be, say, a knitwear designer in a company and they'd be like, Becky, I can't forget all those conversations, all those things, all those, all the passion we have for changing things. How can I make the change in this company that I'm in? And you can't make a sustainable brand. You can't make a transition happen overnight. And mm. actually, as a designer in the studio, you have no power at all to do any kind of change, really, other than do your best with the product. But the reaction or the sort of advice I've given has ranged from doing research together once a month on a Friday to keep the materials updated in terms of low impact materials to join any advisory boards or any committees that are internal to the company to make sure that their voice is being heard in terms of the kind of change of direction that the company might need to take to getting involved in research projects and bringing interns in that might lead or support changes. I've mentored some of my graduates around how to bring change about from the inside. Yeah. And then in some cases, I've helped them move on to jobs where they can really be more impactful. So actually sort of maybe leave textile making and production and actually move into activism or even policy work. The common thread with all of that is how confident this individual female is at taking some bold steps forward. Mm. I mean, I want to just concentrate on your story again for a moment. I think I'm right in saying that you studied with the Dazed and Confused team when you were at Central St. Martins and you started making clothes for Bjork and Kylie, I think. And you had that label that we talked about in the intro, Be Early, a studio on Brick Lane. So I'm interested in why you decided to go from a career in the textile slash fashion world, more the textile world, however you want to describe yourself, into teaching. Why did you start teaching? Oof. God, 
Grant, when I asked you to send me the questions in advance and you said, no, you'd rather have a natural conversation, <laughs> I knew I was in trouble. Um, yeah, you're, you're really, God, you've read a lot of my social media posts, haven't you? No, I'm joking. I'm quite happy to talk about this. It was part of that journey I was talking about earlier where I found mm. being a little label with a studio with all those overheads and all the pressure really, really difficult. I had sort of thrown myself into the fashion world. Yeah, Katie Grand was on the BA course. I was dating the graphic designer of, of Days and Confused. It had just been set up. There were lots of parties and launches and events and just tons of opportunities to be creative and have a lot of fun. And that was all really exciting. And in a big way, they helped me become known by using my clothes, getting them worn by different people, and also introducing me to the stylists that would then put my stuff on the covers. You know, I mean, it was a definitely a network, as we know mm. everything is. But I wasn't completely comfortable. I didn't feel right in my skin. I either felt like I had imposter syndrome or I just felt like I was out of my depth or that I just wasn't ready for that kind of career. So I just took every chance that came along and I ended up just feeling pretty burnt out, I suppose. But at the same time, luckily, my work also caught the interest. When you get that kind of coverage, you get approached by people to give lectures and talks. And, and actually, I did find myself in my happy place unexpectedly, mm. which was mm. teaching, talking to students about their ideas, supporting them, mentoring them. And then after a while of teaching at lots of different places, I sort of stumbled across Chelsea and a really fabulous team there. And that I just I can't describe it to you. It just feels like home when you find a group of people that you really get on with and you share a vision. And the vision became about creating and supporting textile designers that would consider the sustainability of their work. As you've alluded to, but I think it's worth just going back on, that some of your practice was already dealing with those issues. I mean, in the late 90s, you did the exhaust printed recycled textiles, which won a bunch of awards. Can you explain what that series was? Yeah. So I, like I said, I had always worked with polyester and I carried on. And as I began teaching, I became aware of the impacts of the different materials and dyes. So up until that point that had never been mentioned on my BA or my MA, but as I started teaching at Chelsea, I actually became aware of how different a cotton would be to a polyester in terms of its chemical, its water and its energy footprint, for example. So I had already been working with polyester and I had in my hands the ability to make something that was quite low impact. Because when you do a heat transfer print, for example, you use a lot less water and chemicals and energy than you would use doing a traditional print. So I had that on my side. But I also had the opportunity to use a recycled PET polyester made from plastic bottles. And honestly, I mean, this was 99. So the fact that it's still being touted as a new invention is hilarious. <laughs> and I did the first set of scarves that were hand printed with my technique. But what happened was the recycled polyester sort of shrank slightly and went softer and more smooth. And I created something that almost felt like a merino wool scarf rather than a polyester scarf. So I sort of stumbled across a really aesthetically pleasing product that looked original, but that was also made from recycled polyester. And again, it's that instinct thing. I sort of felt like this was a really interesting space. It was stimulating. It was generating a lot of attention and, and feedback. And I realised that if I kept looking for low impact solutions and testing it out using my hands, 
I could bring things into the shops that would really start to raise the awareness around um, the impacts of the industry. And yeah, that's what happened. Mm. Looking at your research, Becky, there's this feeling that it's almost like we already have enough materials and actually what we need to do is create a new system. I mean, after years of work you've put into this, do you have a sense of what that system might look like? I watched a conference you chaired on YouTube recently, the, the launch of the World Circular Textiles Day in 2020, and there was a three-phase model yeah. being presented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, systems design. From farming and building, <laughs> to textile design, <laughs> to fashion design, to teaching, to research, to the inevitable systems design. So you arrive at a point where you understand that the materials that you're working with need to be carefully considered, but actually that they are part of a system. Mm. And that as a designer, and look, who knows what change I can bring about, but it is such an interesting question and such a collaborative space that it's really sort of beguiling. You have to be able to see the material as part of all kinds of phases of the life cycle and all kinds of sort of production. So that phase model in World Circular Textiles Day is about what it could look like to change the textile industry to create completely circular paths for all textiles. Now, polyester needs to go down a different route to cotton. So the processing plants are different. They're significantly different. Warn Again, who are partners on that project, they actually also separate out polyester and cotton which is the most common blend for our clothes, which is also important, but also another mm. kind of plant. So it's sort of showing governments and big business the different kind of development that's needed to send the materials into localised hubs and then have those hubs trade with each other so that materials go into specified routes, but that we still have a full material palette available to us region to region. Right. Now that needs technical development, but it also needs economic plans. And it's also about these sort of logistical flows. But by working with somebody like Warn Again, you can see that a technology company has to think in the phases of development and then pitch to get the funding what it is that they are visioning that could, mm. could be 30 mm. years away. Now, textile designers never think like that, you know. But what we can bring is material knowledge and knowledge of the user and knowledge of clothing and knowledge of trends and habits and behaviours and help and work alongside these partners on seeing where the system blockages are and helping to break that. So, for example, will people get stuff out of their wardrobe and bring it back into a recycling process? You know, what have you got in your wardrobe? You've kept your T-shirt since college, so... You're not having that. The, <laughs> the cotton industry is crying out for your DM boots. Um, yeah, the reality is that, not you actually, Grant, but lots of people have a, a wardrobe stuffed with clothes that they don't wear. And what they wanted at the time was just to get a quick hit from it and make an impression. And then they've either outgrown it style-wise or they've outgrown it body-wise, let's say. So that stuff really would be better if it was flowing in systems. Mm. Now, rewear it, regift it, repair it, remake it, do all those things first. But ulti ultimately, the materials can be regenerated. So, yeah, I mean, that's what it's about now. My work is really about having these bigger, more visionary conversations with all kinds of stakeholders 
to see how the future could look. So you're a systems designer now. <laughs> Is that how you describe yourself? No, <laughs> I haven't changed my title. I sort of think, <laughs> I sort of think that as a designer, uh, you probably can move between these areas quite. Yeah, yeah. So it's about the team I build. Um, and of course, it's not just my team. There's lots of brilliant people uh, collaborating with us. But one of our one of our um, researchers, her expertise is complex collaboration, complex design collaboration. And she's in the team not as a maker. Um, she has great materials knowledge, but she understands materials from a communications and from a sort of partnering point of view. Mm. And that's brilliant. I mean, everywhere I go, the science partners are like arguing with the design partners on what needs to happen. And her job is to come in and get them to work together nicely. One of the things that was alluded to in that conference on a couple of occasions, but never really dwelt on, was the friction between sustainability and circularity. Now, I'm a journalist. I love a bit of friction. What are those issues? Oh, well, I can iron you out with a big fat iron then in that case. Okay, good. Uh, but again, it's the way that it's... Um, oversimplified and reported i suppose but sustainability is about the long-term viability of any industry of our life on the planet circularity is a way of getting there only one way only one way mm. and you know probably since that launch the rap textiles 2030 reports come out and that made it clear that in their calculations the uk could half its carbon emissions from textiles by 2030 and circularity could provide half of that 50%. So 26% of the UK's carbon emissions could be eradicated if we had more circularity. And that means using recycled fibres, making clothes last for longer and then making sure those things are recycled at the end of life. So right. circularity is a solution and a great tool the friction is that it's getting all the airspace and all the funding and the other elements of sustainability like labor for example ethical labor are getting left behind so in other words circularity isn't a panacea to all the world's ills not at all not at all but what we're finding is that it has brought a great amount of acceleration to action so by presenting this solution to people or this opportunity to brands let's say for the first time we've seen them really ramp up their efforts and get more of their company involved because circularity is about the supply chain so you can't just do it with designers so you've got to bring the whole team in and then suddenly the whole company is talking about circularity and then almost like a trojan horse you can bring in the other sustainability <laughs> issues that's okay. the way i see okay. it anyway because that's the interesting thing becky I mean, that, was, that was on my list of questions to ask you because it interests me the way that you work and you're happy to collaborate with global brands. In other words, you aren't looking to upend everything. You seem to want to work within the system. Yeah, it is a difficult place to work as a researcher because, of course, we are impartial and we know that from a climate change point of view, the big brands are the big emitters, but it's never made sense to me to not work with them. If they are the big emitters, what do you do? Create a campaign and say, stop shopping there. Yes, that is one way, but that's not my way because I'm a trained designer. So my way was to go in and see what they were doing and see if I could help. And I very quickly worked out that I would have a better impact, positive impact on the planet if rather than make my own polyester recycled scarves, I went and looked at a product that was produced in the millions and I helped the brand reduce the impact there. Mm. 
So those conversations, those projects inside the brands are really actually emotionally tricky because you know that the change that they can make at that time is incremental, but you go in there with the hope to be inspiring and positive and energized in such a way that you'll plant the seeds of greater change. And that has and hasn't worked, but I do think, I think probably change from the inside and the outside is and understanding the benefits of both is what I'd rest on in the end. Mm. So global capitalism and circularity and that need for growth, they can be bedfellows. Oh, no, you just turned my words there. No, um, <laughs> no, we do need, you know, dare I say it, degrowth would be a good thing in terms of our, our overproduction and our overconsumption. Do we need to make less stuff? Yes. Do we need to consume less stuff and have less stuff knocking around our homes? Yes. How do we do that without creating economic downturns? Because no one in a company can take a decision which will create economic harm, financial harm. Mm. That's mm. not the way that change happens. Is there an opportunity for brands to flatline their resource use? Yes, we've seen brands do that and we've seen them do it really well. How do you do that in fashion and textiles? You look at the emotional needs that can be met with non-material offers. In other words, services that give people the hit that they get from fashion or the pleasure or the satisfaction they get from clothes without always giving them new clothes. So mm. Mm. rental, yes. Repair, yes. Actually, it's a whole load of alternative ways of having fashion that I don't think we've even begun to understand or invent yet. Interesting. I mean, we've mentioned your kids. Is their attitude to clothes different to yours at, at their age, I wonder? Do they have a grip on these issues? Oh, yeah. So they're funny. I am using them as a little experiment every now and then. <laughs> Do they know this? Um, yeah, yeah. I, of course, I have to ask them. I'm no longer allowed to really post about them on Instagram, which is a great shame because they're just entering the most interesting phase now. They're 14 and 16. And it's fascinating the cycles that they go through. So we spend a lot of time talking about climate change. They know what I do for a living. You know, we've watched all the David Attenboroughs. I'm absolutely doing my best to make them well-informed, well-rounded consumers. But they are like every other teenager. They want to look good, to feel good, to be part of the gang, to impress the boys or the girls. You know, you can't help it. They're London kids. I can't remove them from the culture. I've got them into secondhand stuff. Basically, especially with my son, because he loves sportswear, I was just like, oh my God, you know, on Depop or Vinted, you could get so much more for your money. And I bet you, you could get really good quality stuff that's hardly been worn. Why don't you look? And that was it. He was in. So it's a mix really of the occasional new thing, but a lot of dropping parcels off at garages and little lockers. They work very differently these days because it's all on their phones. Whereas I was getting the bus into Bath to go to the antique market to buy vintage black lace dresses to dress like Madonna or something, you know, like it was a very different process to go and dress up as a teenager back in the 18th century. Than, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Has the pandemic changed attitudes, I wonder, being stuck at home, relying on shopping exclusively over the internet, that kind of thing? Yeah, I'd, I've been looking at that a little bit. I would love more research to come out. I think it's definitely on its way. But yes, momentarily, people's habits did change, but very quickly went back. 
apparently to to buying the same volumes and of course switched to loungewear so the need to consume the need for the dopamine hit in the head is what drives a lot of people they literally want the chemical response the pleasure of buying so it became even more accessible and even more needed but people stopped buying dressing up clothes and high heels and switched to loungewear and trainers and gym kits so the pandemic was an amazing moment to study human behavior because the argument that in a way we could be told we need to change our fashion habits and we would be able to for a long time we've known that we should change our habits but we just aren't able to because we're addicted to the pleasure that fashion and shopping gives us well there's that but also we're confronted with it the whole time aren't we it's forced down our throats it's the same with the meat industry we know that eating meat is not necessarily great for the environment but we continue to do it and that's because we're getting advertising and deals hurled at us the whole time and expensive ad agencies telling us what we should do and think you're absolutely right it is the the huge growth of ads uh, that comes into the kids iPhones that contributes to their desires for sure and maybe that's accelerating it maybe that's sort of intensifying it but it is very much there in the playground as it were mm. we're coming to the end of our time there's a couple more things i i want to just quickly ask you about one of them is kind of financial because one of the things i was intrigued by on your website is the uh, number of times the letters e and u crop up and i'm wondering if brexit has had an effect on the kind of research that you do Gosh, Grant, I thought you were going to ask me for access to my bank balance then. I mean, what are you... <laughs> but if you're happy to give me that, Becky, that, that's absolutely fine. Um, yeah, it's... Oh, I knew it was going to be a tough time. I set up Centre for Circular Design five years ago, just over five years ago. And at that point, we hadn't had Brexit. We hadn't had a pandemic. And so I wrote a five-year plan that I thought was entirely reasonable. And it's proved to be very, very difficult and a very tricky five years. Funding, the collaborations, the ideas we've explored with EU funding is just brilliant. We've really been able to get closer to new industry solutions. And they aren't that radical if you sort of look at, say, just the material reprocessing. It's the collaboration, the new areas that have been opened up because you can get Swedish scientists working with brands from Finland supported by academics from London. The sharing of expertise and the energy and the commitment and then the subsequent sort of actions that take place are incredibly powerful. The government have injected some funding. The problem is that with circularity, you need this bigger network. So it's all very well asking for how we can be circular within the UK and we will get so far, but at a certain point, we really need to have those broader networks. Yeah, environmentalism never really came into that debate, let's face it, did no. it? Our time is up, really, Becky. I ought to let you go and do some proper work. Uh, thanks very much for your time. But the final question, really, is is what we can expect from you next. Um, yeah, I suppose if I have enough energy to go ahead after all of this, my questions are becoming much more about the social sciences and maybe a little less about the technical developments. I can kind of understand now what's needed technically and it's very much about big business and investment and plants that need to be built. I still think our greatest change will come from understanding ourselves as individuals and our ability to act and to change. 
and to create new futures together. So for me, I'm interested in gender equity issues, in psychology, the psychology of consumption, the importance of creativity in our lives. I would like to look at textiles and fashion through the lens of social research questions, really, and then look back then into the circular future and draw those things together. Obviously, these are new ideas, so I can't articulate that any more clearly, other than (laughs) for me, it's about people and, and not just about materials. That's what it's about, people. Very good. That was a wonderful way to finish. Becky, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Grant. And to discover more about Becky, go to beckyearly.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews on our Instagram page, materialmatters.design, and you can find all the podcasts I've done, sign up to our newsletter, and lots of other stuff on materialmatters.design. I'm planning on doing another five more episodes before the end of the year, so look out for those. Finally, and this is really important too, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message to the importance of material, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Next up, I'll be talking to the brilliant journalist and curator Eric Chen, who also happens to be the general and artistic director of the new institute, the Dutch National Museum for Architecture, Design and Digital Culture in Rotterdam. It's a fascinating chat, believe me. So listen out for that. And thanks very much for listening to this. I will see you soon. (laughs) 